0: Welcome to episode two of our podcast series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution, hosted by me, Alex Thompson, and joined, as for the whole of this series, by Mike Robinson and David Scott. Gentlemen, last week we were talking about this famous knotty issue of constitutional design, and we come now to the second of our introductory remarks podcasts before the historical review gets going, and this one is going to be jam-packed. So I'm going to use the techniques I've learned in interpreting, which is when it gets really sticky, take a deep breath, slow down, and concentrate more on the contours, because this evening we're covering the most bandied about term of all in the constitutionalist movement in the English-speaking countries, and that term is common law. Now we won't get to definitions of common law, Till the end of the podcast. I think that will be easier on listeners of various degrees of familiarity with the subject, but I will say at the outset that there's so much to cover that we're going to do two podcasts on common law, and the second of them is going to focus on anything that you can call rights in all the various shades of meaning and contradictory mutually exclusive definitions that that term rights has had in various time and places. That we are going to hive off together with anything we don't get to this issue. But then the common law as an issue, why should people care about it? Well, why should people care? There's a question.
1: People are really moved by the common law. And they're moved, I think, in part because they can understand it. They can put it in their heart, they can apply it in their lives, and it makes sense. It makes sense of their interactions with their fellow man. You can express it in shorthand, right? You say, I'm not going to cause harm, and I'm not going to cause loss to my fellow man. I'm not going to use fraud in my contract. Right? So it's you can remember it. You can go into interactions with people, and you can have a principle that we're all equal under a common law jurisdiction. And everything that I do to you, I have to be prepared that you do to me. Therefore, your your approach is... In, immediately moderated. And it's a way of finding remedy, sorting out disputes. It's got an awful lot going for
2: it. The other thing that it has going for it is in the name. It is common. It's common to the entire country. As we head through this, whatever this is that uh, coronavirus represents, and we start seeing common law being suppressed in the country, and we've got different rules, different regulations from one part of the country to the next. Common law represents something which, if we understand what the law is in one part of the country, we can go to another part of the country and understand what the law is there as well. It underpins everything, but it's common.
0: We've got to get into this question of law, first of all. In the English language, and especially because we live historically under the common law, we use the different terms lawful and legal, lawfulness and legality, to describe different aspects of whether something conforms to law or to the law. And roughly speaking, I would say that lawfulness corresponds to the idea of law without a definite article. It's not law if it's not sense. The old English judicial pronouncements by juries and judges would often say if it is bad law, it is not Law. They didn't use an article. That is finding that something is unlawful. But you can also put the definite article in that phrase and say it's the law. And that roughly corresponds to the idea of is it legal? Because you can legalize euthanasia. You can legalize, God forbid, but it's probably coming soon, the rape of underage people. You can legalize. All kinds of things, or you can criminalize, that is, penalize or delegalize things, yet they may still be inherently lawful or unlawful, despite their being illegal or legal. So, lawful and legal is quite a knotty issue. And legality, as an adjective, takes us a step further. When I was at GCHQ, and I'm sure it's even worse now. The buzzword was not even lawfulness or legality, but legalities, plural. Are we observing the legalities? Uh, The more syllables you add on the word, in this case pluralizing it, the more distant you are taking it from this good old concept of law with no article before it, which people understand because it resonates with them. And this is
1: is getting into an area where I, I tend to liken the use of the law to describe statutes and legalities and the creeping tendency to make things which were unlawful legal and things which were lawful illegal. I I view taking that and calling it the law as a form of counterfeiting. It's taking the respect that people feel for the law, that they can understand and feel and that speaks to something in the human condition that is shared by everybody. And using the the credit, using the value of that to give life to something that's quite different.
2: My understanding of this, and I'm quite happy to accept that this could be completely wrong. So if it is wrong, please say so. Legal, the term legal implies legislation to me. David mentioned statute, and maybe this it's worth just having a quick conversation about where parliamentary statute sits. And in fact, even because we're talking about constitutions here, the statute, of course, stems from statements of the king or the queen from the crown. Um, It has more recently become parliamentary legislation. But before we get into that, I mean, Alex, am I right in suggesting that the term legal is best applied to, or it stems from, the idea of, part of legislation?
0: Yes, there is no case that I'm aware of, of people saying, we know that this behaviour is legal or illegal because of common law. More properly, it would be found lawful or unlawful on the basis of common law precisely because the common law is not codified, and particularly not by parliaments. And this is the level at which we understand why there are juries in common law countries, because they understand what the Bible would call the law written on our hearts. Juries know that something is wrong or right in context, given the characters and circumstances, and they will often render, or used to, what is known as a perverse verdict, that is, the statute, the legal directions written down at a particular time by Parliament say, this man is guilty of this crime. But the jury says, we are not going to convict him, because what he did was not wrong, given the circumstances. And of course, the common law response is to learn from that and to turn it into a precedent. I know that I would be attacked by many in the legal profession for putting it in such bold terms, because the tradition that's developed quite wrongly, is that in English law, judges are the judges of the law and juries are the judges of fact, so that they will sometimes be sent out of a hearing a dozen times when one of the sides says, this is a point of law, Milad. Out the jury goes and then shuffles back in when we come back to fact. But yes, statutes and acts of parliament do correlate more with the idea of legal with lawful, and you raised a pr- crucial point there, Mike. But first, David wants to come in. I, I want to test something here because this, this
1: is something I've got from Robert Menard and the Free Man Movement, and a definition which I've I've checked out to an extent. But I want to get your view as to whether this is sound. The argument goes thus: What is a statute? A statute is a written rule of a society, given the force of law. Okay, and the question but you got
2: to you got you to complete that because. Because at the end of it comes with the consent of the governed.
1: No, 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 no. no. It, well, I'm getting there. Give me Okay. The, the second part of it is what is the definition of a society, okay? And a society is a group of people gathered together by consent, right, willingly to engage in a collective operation. So if I join a society, if I join an engineering society, I'm bound by their rules. But I joined. I did so voluntarily. So the, the argument goes that you cannot be forced to join a society against your will, and therefore statute requires your consent, and that means express individual, voluntary, informed consent, and therefore your consent can be withheld. To what extent do you think that's a sound argument?
2: I think that whether or not that is factually correct from a legal standpoint, It's factually correct from a practical standpoint, but where it falls down, in my opinion, is that the the argument is that therefore, or at least some people take the argument as far as saying, therefore, if Parliament produces a statute which I don't believe in, then I have the right to refuse my consent to that individual statute. But of course, the idea of a society is that it's, the consent is given collectively.
1: You you raise a vital point here, and this is one that much later in the series I hope to answer. Which is, if you want
2: to not consent, how how in the earth do you do it? What does it mean? Right. But but the other point is, David, that I have yet to meet someone who is actually willing to separate themselves from society wholly because of course it's one thing to say well I, I don't consent to the actions of parliament today and so I'm going to give up my passport or I'm going to give up certain aspects of belonging to society but the minute they need the health service or a dentist or something else where the, which they can't necessarily afford to go privately for then it's always the state who is Uh, expected to pick up the pieces. And so there are limits to to that particular argument in practice.
0: There are a few purists who go as far as to say we didn't register the birth and we'll do everything privately in cash, but it requires a society around you. You hear mythical accounts sometimes of people in Yorkshire Dales. Uh, It's easier in less densely populated countries, but parts of Yorkshire and mid Wales are sometimes said to contain small colonies of common law purists who live that way. But I think Mike was going to add something to that.
2: Well, no, I was just going to say, but just coming back to the common law point here, was it you, Alex, was saying we know in our hearts what the law is? And in some ways that's expressed in common law in the UK. For example, theft and murder are not to be found on the statute books. They are common law crimes. There is no statute which says that it's illegal to murder or it's illegal to kill someone. It's a common law crime that actually needs no
0: expression in statute. It is the real world as reflected by what all of us know to be right. And it's not just for criminal purposes. It's also for people to have entitlements because there is this phrase in the English language, his common law wife, which develops from centuries, centuries of understanding that if man and woman live together without having gone through any public form of ceremony, they deserve, they are entitled to the respect of society and to inherit each other's goods when the first of them dies and other such exclusive entitlements. So it's not just knowing when to penalise someone, it's also knowing how to treat them fairly in positive terms. But what you've raised here, David more particularly, I think, is actually something with a name historically in Europe. And it's something which gets two definitions early on, which is putting yourself or being put outside society and no longer observing the rules which that society has given the force of law. Note that a statute in that definition is the force of law by the consent of the governed, not the article, not the law, but of law, as we were mentioning earlier. Now, this term I'm thinking of is outlawry. And very early on in medieval Europe, you see that there are differences around Europe among the peoples who both contribute to the British Isles gene pool and cultural background. One is the Norse or Saxon idea of being an outlaw, which is, I'm a homesteader, I don't care for the law that's recited at the king's or parliamentary gatherings. Every year, I will put myself outside those protections, but also those limitations, and be a law unto myself. A moral and neutral attitude in its origin, something that the Icelanders practiced, for example, not necessarily because society shunned them or banished them. But there's also more the Frankish, later the Franco German attitude to outlawry, which is that the emperor declares you to be an outlaw in German, Frei," meaning as free as a bird, in other words, as free to kill as a bird, which is you've displeased someone at court. And anyone who finds you can kill you and capture your goods. Totally opposing ideas of what outlawry is. One based on consent and people working out what's good for themselves, and the other based on the force of society. And while we're at definitions, I should describe statute quickly. Mike put his finger on this. Before there was a parliament in England, which is, well, various points in the 13th century are named, but towards the end of the 13th century there is an English parliament, and around the same time there is a Scots parliament Before that time, and even back into Roman and Near Eastern antiquity, there is this word statute, Latin statutus, and it means a thing which has been caused to stand. It's very close to the definition David gave of something which is understood to be a standing reality, truth and morality in society. Uh, and originally up to that very time of the 13th century it was a matter of going to the king in England or any other realm and saying your majesty please consult your legal advisers who re- represent the wisdom of the land and tell us what the outcome is in this difficult case and what would be pronounced whether or not a parliament was involved in making it or writing it would be called a statute it had been caused to stand.
2: That's right the way it was always expressed to me as I said earlier was that it was a statement of the king and taken to be law from that point forward.
1: Yeah and as the king's law this was some something much less old, much less tried and tested, much less democratic, much less inherent to the human condition than everything else that we've covered under the common law. And it was viewed distinctly. And one of the things we've lost is we've lost in the common parlance the distinction between law and statute.
0: Well, if you want to describe statute as the King's Law, the way it's developed, and later the King's Law in consultation with Parliament, though that's coming unstuck in 2020, as the whole world, and Britain included, is going over to executive decrees without Parliament. If you describe statutes or acts as the King's Law, ultimately, then what David has been, or all of us, has been describing through this podcast so far, on the other hand, would in the English-speaking countries be called the Law of the Land. That's the law coming out of consciences and experience, I would say. It's not a term that's known in Europe.
2: But something that's, that's often questioned and discussed is which law has superiority? Does one law have superior or superiority over the other? And my argument has always been that common law is superior because of something that you discussed earlier in the programme, Alex, and that, that is the power of the jury to overturn a bad statute or to say that under these circumstances, this statute does not apply Uh, and in fact, in some case, nullify the will of Parliament completely. Under those circumstances, common law has to be superior. But what we increasingly have is the determination by Parliament and to a certain degree by the legal profession that statute is superior to common law and that that is the will of the people of the day, which, of course, is not necessarily correct at all.
1: And this, this is very interesting because you said the, the legal profession, right? Because, yes, the legal profession are explicit on this. Statute takes precedence. The statute is superior. My question is, does that apply only if you're a member of the legal profession? Because, remember, this is all about which society you've joined. Well, if you join the law society and the rules of the law society are that statute is superior and you consent to that, then you're bound by it and statute is superior.
2: And of course, if, if the term legal is linked to legislation, then that would be obvious.
0: This is what happens at law schools, is that people get taught in what's known as the sources of law, uh, otherwise known as the hierarchy of norms. In continental judge training, it's very explicit. You get flowcharts, only consider this level of law if there's nothing at the higher level. And the people who wrote, write these pyramids are in the system. And they point to documents coming very recently out of parliaments or supranational courts uh, at European level or world level now to say, because of that recent authority, we now know that common law is the bottom of the pile, which is why the outgoing Archbishop of York, Dr John Sentamu, said to a passerby, uh, I know it's shorthand, but it's how the establishment thinks, oh, we had common law in the past, but now we have statute. It's also why Judge Phillips and... Lady Hale have, uh, and more particularly Lord Neuberger, that trio that were on the Supreme Court together when the UK brought in this thing, the Supreme Court, not very many years ago. They all said in footage that's publicly available, I don't know about common law in one form or another. Either saying Scotland doesn't have it, which was wrong, or Judge Phillips saying when I was appointed to the bench of the Supreme Court, I said, well, I know all these spiffing uh, specialisms of law, but nobody's taught me common law. And someone else on the Supreme Court said, don't worry, chum, you'll soon learn it, as if it were a kind of putty to stop the gaps. So something has been turned on its head there. Let me read the end of the introduction to an American book of interest to all common law jurisdictions, actually, by Clay S. Conrad, called Jury Nullification, the Evolution of a Doctrine. Because Mike has mentioned jury nullification. Now, that's the term that sticks. Uh, There are people who are sent to prison in very... Uh, Questionable ways for even telling juries that they have powers to return a perverse verdict, to say we will not follow the judge's direction or the letter of a statute in this case. What does Conrad say about this term? He says, when jurors decide not to enforce the written law and to do justice instead, we say that they have nullified the law. The power of juries to go beyond acting as mere finders of fact has been variously referred to as jury mercy jury lawlessness, jury justice, jury nullification, or jury veto power. In this book, says Conrad, I will use the terms jury nullification and jury independence interchangeably. And then at the end of this introduction, Conrad adds, perhaps the most accurate term to describe jury nullification is in fact prosecutorial nullification. This is because when a jury returns a verdict of acquittal, It eliminates the power of the prosecutor to pursue charges against the defendant for those acts on which they refused to convict. The awesome power of the government over that individual for that act is what has been nullified by the jury's discretionary provision of lenity or lenity. In other words, merciful acquittal. David, this is probably of more direct relevance to you because Scotland has a virtual ban on private prosecutions and a virtual state monopoly on prosecutions. And right at the end of this argument, in his introduction, Mr Conrad is going over to saying, well, it's, it's more explicit in the US or Scotland than it is in England, but it's employees of the government who do the prosecuting. And what a jury is basically saying is to the executive, you must leave this man alone in this case. So actually, all three branches of government are involved. We were talking about the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary, and the executive has now come to the fore again. The executive is kept away from a certain person when a jury issues a perverse verdict. Is this perhaps why Scotland is doing its best to lead the way in the common law jurisdictions now to put in statutes completely pioneering provisions like uh, in certain cause celebre areas like alleged sexual molestation, which is very politically hot, juries must be directed by judges to convict. That's actually going into Scots legislation now.
1: Scotland is a bit of a special case. Now, we've seen this at the hard end. We've seen it with uh, Robert Greene's prosecution, which the state constantly said, oh, we're very, very troubled about what you've done with your campaign to Stop sexual abuse, and it's very serious. and And, and we're going to take this, what's what's termed in Scotland, as a solemn procedure, which means you can get up to five years, and you're before a jury, only to turn away at the last moment and change it, and just put it in front of a single judge, because no jury would have convicted Robert Green, and they knew it, but a judge easily would. And in Scotland, a judge can give you up to a year. You can be before, before a single judge. You can get a year in jail. And all sorts of restrictions and orders placed on you for what happens when you get out. So as an instrument of social control, it's magnificent. Now, the lack of access to private criminal prosecution is one of the biggest differences between Scotland and England. And it is very much to the detriment of the people of Scotland. And it's a huge asset in England. The degree to which this is comprehensively the case will surprise many who are used to the English system. If you want to engage in a private criminal prosecution in Scotland, you have to apply to the High Court for special permission. This has been granted three times in the last 120 years. So the answer is going to be no. Everything that's done in Scotland is done by one organisation, the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. So they're in charge of absolutely every aspect of prosecution and into all fatal accident inquiries, suspicious deaths and things, they they investigate all of that. All in one organisation, it's it's extremely opaque and there's no choice. The degree to which this is comprehensive, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. In England, if you don't pay your television licence, the BBC or one of their agents will prosecute you in Scotland as the Crown Office. In England, if you don't pay your taxes, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs will prosecute you. So they came to Scotland in one particular tax case and spoke to the judge and said to the judge, the Scottish Sheriff, we are Her Majesty's Customs and Excise. We'll be prosecuting this case. And the judge says, no, you won't. So I beg your pardon. No, you won't, he said. You are Her Majesty's Customs in Scotland. You have no prosecutorial powers. You are a witness. And that's how it had to go forward. They can't prosecute in Scotland. No one can, just the Crown Office. Now, that's a state monopoly on access to justice on all criminal matters. That is a huge amount of power. And it has not been wisely exercised, and it has not been exercised in the interests of anything other than the government, the state. This makes us much less free and much less safe than in a system which is much more plural, where people can take the state employees to court. Uh, But
2: uh, in practice, uh, that's increasingly unlikely because uh, many people that have attempted to take... I'm not talking about the likes of HMRC or organisations of this kind of scale, but individuals attempting to take private prosecutions are increasingly finding themselves in a position where they arrive at the court and discover the Crime Prosecution Service there. And they say they say to them, well, we'll be taking this case over at this point. So England is also losing the ability to bring private prosecutions in this way. But I think something that we've maybe, we've talked about it, but we've, we haven't really stressed the importance of it here, Alex, is the jury as part of common law. I mean, this is this is fundamental to our constitutional rights in the UK, and it's something which the state is working very, very hard to remove from us, the right to have a trial by jury. Fewer and fewer criminal cases are being heard in front of juries, certainly Civil cases are rarely, if ever, heard in front of juries anymore. Libel cases are never heard in front of juries anymore. And the story from the legal profession, from solicitors to judges, is that really, in the modern world, ordinary people aren't really equipped to make these kinds of decisions.
0: And that defamation cases uh, no longer have juries is only from 2014. The other category is fraud cases, complicated fraud as determined by the state in one of its branches. Uh, that's uh, being tried by or heard by juries went out some 20 years ago or so. The argument is always it's not fair on the victims of sexual or financial crime because the jury will not be professional enough. Dutchman Uh, who get caught up with British or other jurisdictions where there are juries sometimes say to me, why do you have these unprofessional people determining the law? It takes them a few minutes to have that software reverse engineered in their head when I talk to them to say that professionalism is not a guarantee of a good verdict, but a guarantee of a state compliant verdict. David also mentioned a couple of minutes ago that the reason why Scotland has a state monopoly, uh, one of the principles imported from continental law in the 17th century and onwards, is for the purposes of the state. And again, the Continentals are more honest about this because France and all the countries which France has influenced has this phrase, reason of state, raison d'etat, because it's convenient for the state, we'll do it this way. And spun out of that, they have a reason to justify the policy taken 100 years ago, almost exactly in sync across much of the Western uh, European continent, to monopolise prosecutorial powers, to outlaw private prosecutions. And the reason is that after the First World War, they decided that there was a principle of opportunity at stake. Opportunity does not mean we have a chance. Opportunity in this case is that the noun derived from the adjective opportune. So it is not opportune for the state to prosecute certain crimes. This is how the Dutch have decided, for example, that they will not prosecute certain kinds of nuisance, including most kinds of drugs pushing in practice because it's too much bother or because the state or some political interest in the state has decided that burglaries or drugs or whatever it is are not worth the hassle because it's only little people involved and we have to tolerate that for the sake of the wonderful riot of colour that is modern life. So the state doesn't think in terms of individuals.
1: A little Scottish stat to illustrate this is the Crown Office, once it's gone through the various stages of deciding whether a case assembled by the police has a, you know, a, a, a statistically reasonable chance of achieving a conviction, so there's enough evidence there to achieve a conviction, then decides whether to proceed with the prosecution. 40% are rejected. 40% of cases where there's enough evidence and there's a reasonable chance of a conviction do not go forward. Inside that... There are many cases where it's not in the public interest, meaning it's not in the state's interest for a prosecution to go forward. And many significant crimes are never brought to a, a court of law. Uh, the light's never brought on the, the wrongdoing because of that huge pool of rejected cases in which significant ones can be so easily lost.
0: And of course, Scotland has entirely lost. England has almost entirely lost the other half of jury's work, which is still known in the United States, which is the grand jury, because the trial jury is the petit jury, from the French petit small, composed of twelve members in most jurisdictions and fifteen in Scotland. And by the way, Scotland has this unique ability for juries to return a third verdict besides guilty and uh, not guilty, which is not proven. A very sensible way of the jury saying there wasn't a case. It's not clear to us what went on here. Uh, which is much to the chagrin uh, of the legal profession that there is such a, a verdict available. Uh, but the, the petty jury is at trial. The, what goes on behind that or before that at the Assize stage, and Belgium even still has this, although the current Minister of Justice is trying to phase it out, is that a larger jury sits at an Assize, which is weighing up is the French meaning of, of Assize, trying the case. And the grand jury decides whether there's a case to answer or not. And this is where you get the grand jury returning the bill to indict or not, do we find a case to answer or not. That was written out by statute in the 1930s, although technical researchers like John Hurst have found that only one of the two bills that a grand jury can return was ever nullified by statute. There was a bill of indictment and a bill of presentment. And the bill of presentment, presented by a what's often called a runaway grand jury, a group of concerned citizens who form a sworn jury, to say, we need to look into this to find out whether there's a case to answer. For example, crimes covered up by the state apparatus. That is possibly still applicable in the jurisdiction of England and Wales, possibly also in both Irish jurisdictions. Hasn't been tested fully. I think the authorities are doing their best to keep that away from being tested. But ultimately, these these rights are won and lost by being asserted, just like sovereignty.
2: And of course, to test that, it would require somebody to form a grand jury, decide whether there's a case to answer and actually take a private prosecution for that case.
0: Yes. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the whole purpose of a grand jury, that at least if they follow US news, they'll be aware of the phenomenon, is to prevent arbitrary and vexatious prosecution that the state can't do what it likes to do in its Scottish guise very often and have a go repeatedly or uh, with ridiculously low evidentiary standards to stick on people as a punishment. You have experience of this happening, haven't you, David? Well,
1: not only do I have experience, Alex Salmon, the former First Minister of Scotland, if he's listening, may well be considering this next bit as entirely relevant to his recent experience.
0: Yes, for those not aware of the background, he found himself on the losing wing of the governing Scottish National Party and uh, was stitched up. Craig Murray is perhaps the, uh, the best blogger on this, as he is on many of the Julian Assange matters.
1: He was accused
0: of sexual crimes and it went
1: through an internal inquiry as a kind of disciplinary matter um, based on the government's own rules of conduct. Uh, the government's case fell apart in a day, It was then picked up by the police and prosecuted through the the courts. The Crown Office was happy that this was a sound prosecution. It was uh, well evidentially based. It was in the public interest and it went forward with a headline of 14 charges against him. And this sounded very, very black for Mr. Salmon. And I wondered, I thought, well, one thing's going to happen here. He's either going to go down, which is clearly the intention, or the, the Crown Office and the government's going to look extremely dirty. So because it was so serious and this went up to attempted rape, it was a solemn case and there was a jury. And then we started to hear the evidence and a lot of the evidence of most of the 14 charges were based on really not very much at all and conduct which didn't, even if true, didn't seem to be passing the test of of criminality. And the the jury acquitted him on all charges bar one were not guilty and one charge was not proven. And he walked out a free man. And there's still investigations and inquiries and debate going on. But the blogger you mentioned put his impressions online on his blog, uh, having sat in in the public gallery and watched this trial. And he's now looking at a potential prison sentence for contempt of court. saying things, we're not sure what things, but some things, that were were deemed somehow to be prejudicial to the trial and uh, were a matter of criminal contempt. So you see the state silencing criticism of the very questionable actions the jury has looked at and said, this man's not guilty, let him go.
0: And you've also identified correctly there that uh, the judge's in a modern jurisdiction often do behave as the state, although they vaunt their independence therefrom. They are paid from tax money, and judge-made law, which is what criminal contempt of court is, a judge finding on the spur of the moment you've been a very naughty boy and have to go to prison for it, is something which up to U.S. Supreme Court's justice level uh, has been identified uh, as an abuse and repugnant to the common law. We've covered about a fifth or a quarter of the talking points I had in mind, but I think we've covered the most essential issues, and this is going to be a lengthy series. The points we haven't addressed yet will come in a natural way to be discussed later. But let's just review what we've seen so far, and we haven't even got onto the question of the difference between criminal law or public law on the one hand, which is you've offended society, and civil law on the other with its domains such as tort, contract, property, obligation, which is you and I have made an agreement or, or have caused each other harm and have to rectify that in a court. That also will have to come later. But we have looked at the common law in outline. We've seen that it is something which is not the states to give, but organs of the state can be looked to to redefine and establish what it is, and have to be trusted and held to account to do that properly. And also they have a tendency, because of who pays them, to wander to the margins of lawfulness and to step over that line into something which is legal but no longer lawful as time goes on. And so in closing, I think we should review my three working definitions of common law that I've been working on with David in particular for a while. And I think they stand the test of most of the UK column analysis that we we throw at it. And so these three definitions of common law, I think, are all to be borne in mind by people who seriously consider the position of common law within law and the law. The first is the oldest, it's the Latin term jus commune, which is simply the Latin original from which we get the English phrase common law. That isn't even an England specific or British Isles specific term. It's a medieval uh, legal scholars international term, jus comune, and jus comune in Latin means everywhere accepted or common to all. In that sense, we still have it in English. The jus comune, the common law in the earlier Middle Ages was simply a term for universally acknowledged law, natural law, or doing what is fair and right regardless of whose jurisdiction one is in, or regardless of whether a king or parliament is setting law. The second definition of common law that developed is honouring precedent as we continue to discover the reality of what a righteous outcome is, case by case. So this second definition of common law is a case-led approach. To jurisprudence or sorting out cases rather than going to a code and saying what is the flowchart for this case. This tradition also has a Latin term stare decisis or stare decisis according to some pronunciations, which means standing by things previously decided. Not saying parliament has changed its mind because of a political or economic change of interest uh, in the country. No, we stand by what we have found in the past to be upheld as law. And the most recent but perhaps most bandied about uh, definition of common law these days is to use common law as an adjective and to describe a country as having a common law system or being a common law jurisdiction, such as the jurisdiction of England and Wales, the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, are common law countries. This is more complicated to pick apart, but I'll throw it back to both of you gentlemen to see whether I think uh, you think I've got my definitions right. But a common law jurisdiction, bearing in mind what we've said this evening, is a legal order that does not require a codified civil or criminal law, though it may have one. The United States has codified much of its civil and criminal law while remaining a common law country. It's a country where Parliament or the legislature does not take it upon itself to define everything and define every task by enacting a law saying there shall be this agency or there shall be a crime of murder. It's a country in which the sovereign presidency or executive is the fount of honour and clemency and therefore undertakes to honour fairness, equity, mercy and the people's custom rather than simply philosophical ideas of what is proper or modern in judging. And it's a country in which the judiciary, the judges, are umpires, not inquisitors, as they are on the continent, and whose independence is genuine It's not just a question of being unsackable by the executive or parliament uh, while in reality uh, being able to agree the outcome behind the scenes. It's genuine independence because a judge has to look to a jury to say, is this fair in this case? And in some senses has to bow to the superior authority and legitimacy of the jury precisely because they're laymen. Have I in that rather wordy series of definitions, gentlemen, summed up the essence of common law, this very elusive term that people are always arguing over.
2: I think that that's a very good summary. Um, the only thing that I might add, and it's really for the next programme, if we're talking about rights, the question is, where, does, where do our rights spring from? It's it's There's a bit of discussion to be had about that, which is really for the next programme.
1: And I I'm nothing nothing to add to that, but, but to close... Uh, I have seen a common law grand jury in action, and a common law grand jury is also the body that has the the inquisitor role that actually tests the evidence. It doesn't sit passively as a jury does in a legal court. It drives the whole process. It asks the questions. And I've seen this in in action, and I've seen barristers in action, and barristers are sharp and intelligent and well-trained people, but I would have to say that the the thoroughness of the the examination that came from 15 ordinary men and women in a grand jury, I was astonished by that it was, I'm absolutely convinced, superior to what any single mind, however sharp and well-trained and brilliant, could have come up with because you've got this richness of life experience looking at a problem from 15 or 12 different perspectives and no single mind can replicate that. It struck me, watching this process, that there was an alternative to what we are told the law must contain and must must involve, and that alternative uh, does point towards higher standards of justice.
0: On the day when we are recording this podcast, the talk of the commentariat is the Freshfields Lecture Delivered for the Cambridge Law Faculty by Lord Jonathan Sumption on uh, government by decree in this year of COVID. And so I shall close by his very spirited definition of the common law without using the phrase. In that lecture, Lord Sumption said, Not everything that a government is legally entitled to do is legitimate. And not everything that is lawful is consistent with the constitutional traditions of this country. The government's position this year can only be understood as absolutely anything is justifiable. I reject that claim. Join us next time to look at the issue of rights in all the senses in which that term can be used.